Well, praise the Lord. Thank you, Beth, for a great, great song. And ask you to join me this morning back in the book of Joshua, uh, where we left off uh, prior to our spring revival and then Stewardship Sunday, uh, last Sunday. And we'll actually be in Joshua chapter 5. Pray for Pastor Tyler. He is at our church plant in Scottsdale, Arizona today. Uh, this is their friend day. And they've been working hard for the last several weeks, as we do here, in preparation for our friend day. We got out in the community and, and um, been working on inviting people, their family and their friends. And uh, so you pray uh, for Pastor Tyler as he preaches there uh, today. I know that, that he would appreciate that very, very much. Before we get into chapter 5, I, I just want to remind you a little bit of what happened in chapter 4. If you were with us uh, only three weeks ago now, we preached from Joshua uh, chapter 4 on the importance of spiritual memorials. And I'll not get into all of that this morning. Um, but as we left chapter 4, um, the children of Israel had just witnessed an incredible miracle of God. God parted the waters of the flooded Jordan River and He dried up the river's bed and He allowed those two million or more Israelites to cross the dry riverbed into the promised land. The Crossing the Jordan and into Canaan was really a fulfillment of something that God had promised to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15. And then God confirmed that promise to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. And then he confirmed it again to his grandson, uh, Jacob, in Genesis chapter 28. And the promise was what we saw happen in Genesis 4, that one day the children of Israel would enter and inherit the land of Canaan. Thus the reason that Canaan is often referred to as the promised land, because it was the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. Now it was originally God's plan for Moses to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. But because of disobedience and unbelief, Moses didn't get to do that. As a matter of fact, Moses and all of the uh, the men of Israel who were 20 years old and older, let me back up a moment, God, Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They had been held captive there for 400 years. But again, because of disobedience and unbelief, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 long years. And because of that disobedience and because of their unbelief, God told Moses, you're not going in. As a matter of fact, 
all of the, the, the men at that time who were 20 years old and older died in the wilderness along with Moses. And so that's when we pick up Joshua chapter 1 and Joshua is now the leader of God's chosen people, the Jews. And by the way, the Jews are still God's chosen people in 2019. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Don't let the, the knuckleheads on TV tell you any different. The Jews are God's chosen people. And God will protect them because God has protected them through the years. And God will continue to protect them. And the land therein is their land. Just study the Old Testament. Study the promises that God made. They're not, they're, they're not living in land that they've stolen. That land God gave to them. So there's a little side sermon for you. And so Joshua is now leading the children of Israel. They crossed the Jordan River. And finally... They're in the land that God had promised to them many, many years prior. So let's pick it up here in, in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, when they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over. Look at this. When they heard that, their hearts melted. Neither was there any spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. So here we have the occupiers of Canaan, the Amorites and the Canaanites. Both of them are wicked, anti-God, idolatrous groups of people. Their fighting men were large and they were fierce and they were not easily defeated at all. But in spite of their intimidating might and their overwhelming power, they were utterly defeated in their spirits because of God's display of power at the Jordan. So this whole river crossing thing had literally melted their hearts. They were scared to death. They didn't know what was going to happen next if, if, the, if Israel's God was that powerful and was willing to help them to that degree. Then what does that mean for us? And when you combine that with no doubt the bolstered courage of the Israelites who were now absolutely convinced that God will fight for them and that God will help them gain possession of the land, then you would think that at this moment, I mean, the, the, the smartest thing to do at that point would have been to charge onward toward Jericho. It's just two miles. And let, let's get after it. I mean, we're ready. We're pumped. But God had other plans. <laughs> and they were strange plans 
to say the least. Let me show you. Chapter 5 and verse 2. At that time, the time I just described, the time when the, the Canaanites and the Amorites were cowering in fear, and God's people were at a high and, and, and infused with courage. At that time, here's what God did. He said to Joshua, make these sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. Now, it'll explain this in just a moment, but let me, let me preface it by saying this. This wasn't a situation where those who had already been circumcised were going to be circumcised again. That's not what it's talking about. Verse 3, and Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness, by the way, after they came out of Egypt. I, I told you, all the men 20 and up, they died. Now all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them had they not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war, which came out of Egypt, were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord unto whom the Lord sware that he would not show them the land, which the Lord sware unto their fathers that he would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. And their children, whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised. So you've got a, a, a group of people who came out of Egypt. They had already been circumcised. They're dead, but this, these that had been born in the wilderness... They had not been circumcised, so this was a large-scale act that Moses, that, excuse me, that Joshua is performing here, and he's doing it the second time for this new group. Does that make sense? All right, that's where we're at. Verse 8, it came to pass when they had done circumcising all the people, that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore the name of this place is called Gilgal unto this day. Now I'm no military strategist by any means. But in my simple way of thinking, militarily, these plans made absolutely zero sense. Again, the, the enemy was morally defeated. They were cowering in fear of Israel and their God. And they were probably more susceptible to defeat at this time than at any other time. And yet God ordered Joshua to circumcise the men in the camp. Now you can imagine the debilitating effect of this procedure. These were grown men. I did a little bit of research about adult male circumcision. The healing time, it said, was two to three weeks. So let's say it was the same for these men. That's 14 to 21 days 
that the entire army of Israel was totally incapable of defending themselves, let alone defending their families from an enemy attack. So you tell me, what sense does that make? It, it, it seems to me, and again, in my simple way of thinking, that if God really wanted this procedure to take place, that he would have done it on the other side of the Jordan. So the river would, would serve as a, a protective barrier from the Amorites and, and from the Canaanites. But be that as, as it may, our purpose is not to discuss military strategy this morning. So we'll just, we'll just leave it there. Because the greater question today is why was it so important that these men be circumcised? I mean, they lived all these years without it. So why now? Why, when they're on the other side of the river, exposed to the enemies of the land, why, why did God want this to happen? Well, there is a reason why. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I want us to, to do a little work this morning in the Old Testament with regard to the spiritual significance of this physical act of circumcision. Now stay with me, okay? Go, go, if you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 17. If you don't have your Bible, these verses will be on the screen. Because I think it's important for us to understand this morning, to, to make the application later, it's important for us to understand the significance of this act of circumcision for the Jewish people. And so, really it has to do with a covenant or agreement that God had made with Abraham, the father of the Jews. And it's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 5. God speaking to Abraham, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. So if this covenant was everlasting, is it still in effect? Absolutely. To be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Again, if God, gave, if, if God gave them the land in Genesis 17 and it was to be an everlasting possession, is it still theirs? Absolutely. And I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Here it is. Every man child among you 
shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Note that word, token. We'll come back to it. And it shall be a token. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man-child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with, with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. Now let's go back to the word token. God said this this act of circumcision is going to be a token. The Hebrew word there is pronounced the same, and it's almost spelled the same as our English word oath. It means a sign or a signal or evidence or a mark. So circumcision, here it is, circumcision was the outward sign or the outward mark that the Hebrew people were in agreement with God. It was evidence that they were God's people, that they belonged to Him. This wedding ring is a token of the fact that I belong to my wife. And her ring is a token. It is evidence. It is a sign that she belongs to me. That we belong to each other. We entered a covenant. We made an oath. And we sealed that oath. We sealed that covenant with our rings. You with me? The sign of circumcision was to distinguish the Jews as followers of God in the midst of other peoples who weren't followers of God. It was meant to set them apart as distinctly God's. We might say it like this. Through the act of circumcision... God was stating his expectations that Israel was to be a holy people, set apart for his glory. Let me say that again. It was a covenant between God and Israel that set them apart as holy unto God for his glory. And I ask you this morning, Is that not God's expectation of us as New Testament believers? To be holy? To live distinctly different than non-believers? It is. That is God's expectation of us as believers. Let me show you a couple of passages of Scripture In the book of 1 Peter, the first one is in chapter 1. Peter said, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves 
according to the former lust in your ignorance. In other words, Peter is saying this, don't live your life now as a believer like you lived it as an unbeliever, even if back then you didn't know how you were supposed to live. It doesn't matter. Don't live that way anymore. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or in all areas of your life. Because as it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And then in the next chapter he wrote this, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation. A, what's that next word? Peculiar people. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In these verses, Peter says that as New Testament people of God, we are to be different. Different meaning distinct, separate, not the same, out of the ordinary, unusual. Now, please do not take that to mean that we're to be weird or that we are to be strange or that we are to be outlandish. But we are, church, listen to me, we are supposed to be different. As a holy person, our present lifestyle is not only different from the life we lived before we got saved, but is different from the lifestyle of the unsaved around us. As holy people, we are to represent Jesus to a world that is watching. And by the way, this holiness is not optional. It's not something we can take or leave. No, it is mandatory. It's what marks us, if you will, as God followers. Sadly, there are some folks, and I'm not talking about un unbelievers, I'm talking about believers. There are some believers who balk at the idea of holiness. I mean, to their way of thinking, that is just a bridge too far. I mean, the, the thought of being peculiar. The, the, the thought of standing out, of being thought of as, well, different, that's just, that's too much. Lord, you're asking too much. But why is that? Why, why do people who are saved balk at this concept, this teaching, this commandment, of holiness. I think there are, are a few reasons for that. Number one, we value conformity. And that is in spite of Paul's words in Romans 12, where he, he tells us uh, 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 directly that we are not to be conformed to this world. The word conformed there meaning to fashion, <coughs> excuse me, to fashion self according to. 
Paul said this, don't fashion yourself according to the world around you. Don't live like, don't look like, don't act like, don't think like, don't talk like those around you. Be distinctly different. Because we're terrified of being different, we do anything we can to fit in 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 almost every area of our lives. But let me ask you this morning, if being a Christian is no different than being a non-Christian, then why bother being a Christian? I think another reason for our failure at times to live distinctly different as believers is because we visualize a caricature of holiness. And I don't know what thought came to your mind this morning when I mentioned the word holy or holiness. But somehow this misconception, or excuse me, somehow we have a misconception that holiness communicates an attitude and displays actions that have become known as holier than thou. I don't know about you, but I detest a pseudo-spirituality and behavior that puts one on a pedestal as being better than the rest. That's not what the Bible teaches that you and I as believers are supposed to be. We're not supposed to put ourselves on some kind of self-righteous pedestal where we look down on everybody else that's different than us. That's not the biblical teaching of holiness. But yet somebody, uh, people conjure up this conception that that's what holiness is. That's not. As a matter of fact, that's the very thing that Jesus called the Pharisees out for time and time and time again. Just read the Gospels. Go to the book of Matthew and read how many times Jesus called out these Pharisees who were an influential religious sect within Judaism in the the days of of Christ who were self-righteous and they were smug in their delusion that they were pleasing to God. These people actually believed that they were better than everybody else because of all of their outward actions. And Jesus called them out time and time and time again. To give you a good idea of the self-righteous smugness of the Pharisees, listen to this verse from Luke 18. The Pharisees stood... The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. That's the attitude of the Pharisee. And if that's your thought and your conception of what holiness is, then you're wrong. Because that's not true holiness. That is sanctimonious hypocrisy. This kind of of nonsense is not what God calls us to when he calls us to a life of holiness. No, no, church, listen, we are not to look down at others as though we are better than them. As a matter of fact, those actions belie a lack of holiness. Are you tracking with me? We're going somewhere. Stay with me. A third reason some don't want to be holy 
is, as I'm trying to tell you, they don't understand what it is. To some, holiness conjures up images of a group of monks with all their hair shaved off. I'm almost there. (laughs) And they're wearing these robes. And they're living away from civilization in far, far, far away places. For others, they may have the idea that they have to trade in their nice car and and comfortable home and well-paying job for a Peace Corps stint in some third world country. Listen, holiness, being distinct, is none of that. It's none of that. Yet, it is more than that. So what does it really mean to be holy? What does it really mean for a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be distinctly different, to be separate, to not be the same? There are many sermons that could be preached in answering that question. But I'll just preach one today and give you some very simple some very basic things that it means to be different. Number one, it means to think differently. To be holy, to be separate, to be distinct means to think differently. Solomon had it right in the book of Proverbs, chapter 23 and verse 7, when he said this, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. I've said this a number of times here. Brother Tyler repeated it here a few weeks ago. You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. You're not what you think you are, but what you think is what you are. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It doesn't matter what's going on out here. If what's going on in here is not the same. The truth is it's not what's going on out here that makes you. It's what goes on in here. I quoted from Romans chapter 12 a moment ago, but here's the the entire verse. Paul said, and be not conformed to this world, to this culture. He said, but be ye transformed. How does that take place? By the renewing of our mind, we learn to think differently, and thus we act differently, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we are going to be different, then we have got to think different. Preacher, what do you mean? I mean this, simply, we have to come to the place where our thoughts are lined up with the principles and precepts of the Word of God as revealed in the Scripture. That means we have to replace thoughts of me first with thoughts of others first, because that's in the book. We have to replace thoughts of revenge with thoughts of forgiveness. 
We have to replace thoughts of satisfying our carnal appetites with thoughts of subduing them. We have to replace thoughts of what I want with thoughts of what God wants. We have to learn to think differently than what those around us think. And we cannot afford to let their thinking squeeze us into conformity with that. We must think differently because, as I said a moment ago, here's what happens when we think differently, we live differently. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So as we begin to let the Holy Spirit of God and the, the Word of God transform our thinking, it will automatically transform our living. So to be holy means to think differently, and it means to live differently. Again, Paul said we're not to be conformed to this world. Someone who is striving to live holy is someone who refuses to let the unbelievers around them pressure them to, into living in a way that is contrary to God's Word. So, if you practice sex only within the confines of the marriage relationship and believe that that relationship should only be between a man and a woman, you're going to be distinctly different in this culture. I'm just getting practical with you today. If you refuse to look upon another woman and lust via the internet because you believe that's adultery, then in 2019 you're going to be distinctly different. If you believe you ought to tell the truth at all costs, you're going to be distinctly different. If you live in a way that puts others before yourself, you're going to be distinctly different. If you live in a way that honors authority, you're going to be distinctly different. If you refuse to take things that belong to others because they don't belong to you, you're going to be distinctly different. Can you help me? When you and I begin to think differently, we begin to act differently. But let me insert this thought, because I think it's important here, from Pastor Kevin DeYoung, lest we think holiness is just some kind of, of, of moral checklist of outward restraints where we take care of a few bad habits and develop a couple of good ones in their place. And let me just say this about a, a holiness checklist. Here's the problem with that. No two lists are the same. I'm going to have my list, and you're going to have your list, and somebody else is going to have their list, and we're going to live according to our list, and because we're able to check off these things on our list, we're, hey, I'm good. 
We're not talking this morning about some kind of morality checklist that we can go through at the end of the day. Yeah, I was this, I was this, or whoop, not that, this, this. I was 95% only today. That's not what we're talking about. Listen to what he says. A moral checklist doesn't take into consideration the idols of the heart. It may not even have the gospel as part of the equation. And inevitably... Checklist spirituality is highly selective. So you end up feeling successful at sanctification or at holiness because you stayed away from drugs, lost weight, served at the soup kitchen, and renounced styrofoam. But you've ignored gentleness, humility, joy, and sexual purity. Yeah, I, I, I fulfilled all of these. I looked good on the outside today, but I was harsh, and I was mean, and I was unkind, and I was unloving, and thus I was not holy. Yeah, but I, I looked good. Well, so did the Pharisees. The Pharisees looked good on the outside. Here's what Jesus said. On the outside... You look like whited sepulchers. You look like finely decorated graves. You were beautiful on the outside. But he said like any grave, on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. I don't, you, go, you go to either cemetery here and you take the most ornately decorated and beautifully decorated grave and you dig it up and you open the coffin... You're going to find filth, deadness, grossness. You with me? Listen, making a moral checklist is not all there is to being holy. What matters is what goes on in here. Are you kind? Are you loving? Are you gentle? Are you humble? Come on. You can't, you can't discount those things. A holy person has the courage to be different on the outside and on the inside because they're marching to the drumbeat of a different drummer. And they're not afraid to be out of step with those around them. To live holy means to think differently. It means to live differently. It means to talk differently. The words we use reveal most obviously if we're different or not. Paul states in, in no uncertain terms that we are not to let any corrupt communication, is what he calls it. We are not to let any corrupt communication proceed out of our mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, my mind immediately goes to cursing. And I certainly think that that is to be included in the realm of corrupt communication. I'm convinced this morning that profanity has no place in the Christian's vocabulary. But neither does gossip. Neither does hatefulness. Neither does degrading remarks. Amen. I don't cuss, so I must be good. No, you're not good if you gossip. You're not holy if you hurt people with your words. 
not being holy. If you slander, that's not holiness. If you flatter people, that's not holiness. Listen to what Paul said in the, in the other part of that verse. He said, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. He said, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Holy speech is clearly that which builds others up and brings them joy. Let me stop there for a moment and ask you this. To this point, how are you measuring up what it means to be holy? You see, you just have to deal with this message one time. I have to deal with it many times through the week <laughs> as I go over it, and it goes over me. And it's humbling. Well, I think I'm pretty good until I really get to thinking about what holiness really is. Here's the final thing. Somebody say amen. Good. You weren't that enthusiastic, so I like it. Here's the final thing. It means to love differently. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. People will know that we're different when the motives of our love are not to get, but to give. People will know that we're different when we choose to love those who do not choose to love us back. People will know that we're different, that we're distinct, that we're not the same when we love those who live differently than we do. And please understand this this morning. We can live differently and still love sincerely. Did you get that? That is, we can choose. We can choose to live our lives in a biblical way that is not the same as those we work with and, and, and socialize with who don't choose to live their lives according to the Word of God. We can live distinctly different, are you listening? And still love people. Because I've chosen to live according to the principles and precepts to the best of my ability to the word, in the Word of God. Because I've chosen to do that doesn't mean I can't love people who have not chosen that path. I can pray for them that they would choose that path. But I don't have to hate them. We're living in a world that has a desperate need for people who are different. 
People whose lives are marked by something that sets them apart. It doesn't set them above. It sets them apart. And I hope you've already gotten that message this morning because there is a difference. Now listen, living in such a way is not easy. It's not easy. As a matter of fact, like circumcision, it can be painful. As we begin cutting away from our lives those things that keep us from God's call to holiness. It can be painful. It's not easy. Also like circumcision, it's needful for us to be holy as he is holy. We can't be immoral and dishonest and unkind and unloving and, and hypocritical and be holy. And I, I, listen, I'm not standing here this morning as some bastion to holiness. I've got my own issues. But we've got to cut those things out of our lives if we're going to be holy as he is holy. But unlike circumcision, holiness doesn't come about in our lives as the result of just one big decision or action. And circumcision was just that. It's over. We don't reach holiness just like that. Doesn't work that way. To quote Pastor DeYoung again, I love this. Holiness is the sum of a million little things. The avoidance of little evils and little foibles. The setting aside of little bits of worldliness and little acts of compromise. The putting to death of little inconsistencies and little indiscretions. The attention to little duties and little dealings. The hard work of little self-denials and little self-restraints. The cultivation, he said, of little benevolences and little forbearances. Pastor, what does he mean? He means this, that a believer's journey to holiness is not one large leap. Well, on, 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 on March of 17, 2019, I decided to be holy. Boom, and now I'm holy. No, 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 no. That's not how, we, that's not how we're holy. We become holy by changing this little thing here and that little thing there and we don't change this thing and that thing in one fell swoop either we change a little bit at a time we decide i'm going to be different today in this area and we take a little step and then we take another little step and another does that make sense so I'm not telling you, you're going to, well, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to walk out of here holy today. No, it's, it's little steps along the way. And every day, with the help of God and the Holy Spirit and His Word, 
we're able to deny ourselves of these things and put these things to the side and we begin to cultivate things in their place. It's just a little bit at a time. So as we close today, what is it that needs to be cut away from your life so you can be more like Jesus? I, man, I mentioned a lot of things today and didn't even touch the hem of the garment. Maybe, maybe something that you struggle with that's keeping you from Christ's likeness wasn't even mentioned today, but you know right now in your heart what it is because God reminded you of it. So what is it today that needs to be cut away from your life? What little step, listen, what little step could you take today in your journey forward toward holiness? Toward living a distinctly different life? Is it something that has to do with the way you talk? Is it something that has to do with the way you think and and thus affects the way you live? Is it something that keeps you from loving others in the same way that Jesus loves you? I don't know what it may be in your life. I know what the things are in my own life. And I have to worry about me, and you have to worry about you. But now's the time. Now's the time to commit yourself to taking a little step in the right direction. Would you pray with me today?